Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. Now, I think most of us in the world are aware that Queen Elizabeth has passed away. But what's been interesting about the occasion is that it has resulted in divisive debate about the legacy of empire and her own legacy, whether or not she is implicated in gross violations of human rights, for example, or whether some responses to her death in the immediate aftermath of it are callous or hashtag too soon. And I've been mulling over that because several people assume that I must have a point of view as someone who's opinionated. And actually, while I can frame a lot of the questions, both the historical ones in terms of the historical record, as well as the contemporary questions, such as our responses to empire, to death, to monarchy, whether or not in modernity there is a place for monarchies everywhere, including the Zulu monarchy and others in Africa. But I don't necessarily have deep conviction in response to these questions. Well, one person who can help us navigate a lot of the historical aspects and also dip into some of the important normative questions about what our attitudes should be towards monarchies in general, whether they're compatible, for example, with constitutional democracies within which they are often located, is historian Vashna Jagannath, who now joins me on Eusebius on Times Live. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Vashna, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Yusebius, for having me. I want to start by just stating something that occurred to me while I spoke to another person that is a regular on the podcast platform, Sasonka Msamang, excellent South African writer. And I had said to Sasonka, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. We appropriately, as in heavy scare quotes, subjects of empire have been debating in the last couple of days or re-inscribing to the public sphere historical facts about empire's implication in violence in parts of the global south, Kenya, India, South Africa, to take just a couple of territories. But when you and I were setting up this conversation, you made an important point, which is that there's also within the UK itself, important legacy, historical record to be examined, to be lifted to the surface in relation to how the monarchy has played out and been implicated in the making of geographical, political, and other injustices in the UK, such as, for example, Scotland, Ireland, or indeed, which we'll get to in the course of the discussion, class divisions within England itself. But yet many of us here in South Africa, in India, and Kenya 
for good reason, are parochial in thinking that there is a monolith called the English monarchy that only affected colonial outposts. But there's also, isn't there, a rich internal history of how monarchies came about in England and what the implications have been in the making of injustices within the UK itself. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What people uh, tend to forget is that the making of the monarchy and the current power structure that we have right now actually has its origins within William the Conqueror, who invaded England in 1066. And, you know, while the English monarchy dates even further back to Alfred the Great as officially thought to be the start of this sort of feudal system of government within England, what you have is a sort of consolidation of power of an invading class of people from Normandy in France mm. that come in 1066 and take over. And that has really been the sort of unbroken structure of the English monarchy. And they begin in England and firstly they unite England in a way that hadn't been united, but the power and the land rests in the few individuals along with William, William the Conqueror who become the elite and the nobility who then run England. And this has continued for the last thousand years, basically. And what's really even more interesting is in a recent study done as recently as 2019, they found that 1% of the English population own over half of the land of England. That's 25,000 people own wow. over half the land of England. And those people can actually, when they looked at the Doomsday Consensus book, which William the Conqueror had compiled when he invaded England of the land, it was basically the first census of England, those same names of people who are granted land are the same people who you find still owning land all this time later. So, in fact, it set up that structure such a long time ago, and it was that invading force, that sort of foreign domination that has continued in England right up until recently. After you had the, 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 the Normandy invasion, you then had further French houses like the Plantagenets who come into power, and you will know them from the House of York and Lancaster. The only time you have a sort of indigenizing of the monarchy within England is a brief period under Henry VIII. I mean, he just didn't only marry six people and, you know, proceeded to violently <laughs> depose of them, but he also managed to get his court to speak in English and not in French. Uh, I mean, before that, kings of England didn't even live in France. For example, the famous Richard Lionheart, you know, who comes to us from the tales of Robin Hood, he was, mm. you know, mm. king of England for 10 years, but spent no more than six months in England and even famously tried to sell London, but bemoaned that no one would want to buy it. And so it's been like completely conflictual. England itself in its relation to the royal family has been a site of conquest. It has been something they sought to control. Then later on you have the House of Hanover, which comes from the Dutch, William of mm -hmm. Orange, who is the king. Then you have the Saxe Coburg-Guther House, which has now come to be known as Windsor. And that's as recently as 1917. So a German nobility and royal family controlled the, the, the kingdom, I mean, the, the monarchy of England. And mm -hmm. in fact, Queen Elizabeth, the current Queen Elizabeth II, who's just passed on, her family are descendants directly from Victoria and Alfred, who were the Saxe-Coburg a house. Mm. And they actually, you know, interestingly enough, only changed the name to Windsor in 1917 when the German bombs were falling all over England during World War I. And they realized very quickly that people might notice that they're also German. So they tried to look 
in the family <laughs> tree for a name that wasn't that was English, and they couldn't find a royal name that wasn't English. So someone came up with the name of Windsor and said, name it after the castle, because nothing's more English than the castle. Windsor, mm. and that's how you have the House of Windsor. That's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to ask a lot of Monarchy 101 questions, and they will be incredibly basic. I'm listening to you, and I'm wondering to myself, okay, so if, interestingly, empire doesn't begin with the Brits going around the world and subjugating colonial sort of subjects that they find, such as here in South Africa, but that geographically, the territory now known as England was itself prior to that in an historical timeline, uh, subject to contestation. What happened in the interim period? How did England go from a site of contestation involving powers from mainland Europe contesting that space mm -hmm. To eventually emerging Vashna yes. as a contiguous political sort of territory, one that is militarily and economically and politically powerful, mm -hmm. so much so that it can then set itself up yes. for misadventures around the globe. Yes, I mean, how does a place that can fit a small island that can fit into the Kruger National Park, be able to take over the rest of the world. <laughs> exactly. You know, how does that happen? And a space that's so contested. Perhaps, and this is like a speculation, because looking through the history and how contested, you know, you know, when you're listening to someone like the horrible Morgan Pierce, you, 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 you've been told that this is tradition, this is stability, this is what's been going on for centuries and centuries. But actually, yeah. it has not. It has been such a contested space and power for England. And then uh, what becomes Great Britain is so contested that you find what is really important about the monarchy in England is that it's always been able to be adaptable from a very early stage, because power wasn't guaranteed. If you mm. look at the ways in which power was constantly contested by the elites and the formation of things like Magna Carta and um, the kings giving power up increasingly more and more, you find that it's an incredibly adaptive sort of monarchy. Unlike, say, the French monarchy that was so unwielding it had to be completely smashed, or the Tsarist monarchy in, in, the, in, in Russia that had to be smashed. But here yeah. in England, you have something that's quite malleable. And, and it really moves with times. And what you find happening is the first time that this uh, there's a consolidation of absolute power within the elites is when the land enclosures begin. In the it's around the 12th century that you have you know the first sort of land enclosures happening within England, which is then the closing off of land and creating land as private property. That's the first wave of consolidating power of the elites. Once this begins to happen, the elites grow in power. They are able to then increase their military base. They're able to increase, some of the dukes and the lords are able to increase their military base to such an extent that they can also now begin to contest the king himself and the monarchy himself for power internally within England. And you find, as with any society, once people, certain class of people are freed up by wealth, you have a flourishing of things that are happening. And what begins to happen very importantly is this obsession with the crusades that takes place. And we all know that war is big money. That's even the current state today. For the rich, yeah. rich get richer. The crusades mm. becomes the state. And that has a massive impact. When people go into North Africa, when they go into the Middle East, they are completely taken by this world 
that is full of ideas. It's full of art and culture, mathematics, architecture. You must remember that the universities that come into England, the the the, the formats are in, in fact Oxford, where you went to, the, those are inspired by the madrasas that they see in the East. And what mm. happens is people come in with these ideas and they get exposed to things like maps from the Arab geographers, which they which they pick up and they begin to expand their horizons. They want to trade more. And that begins the steps. But what they are doing concurrently is they are expanding within what comes to be known as the United Kingdom today. And they go in and colonize, actively colonize the spaces of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and so on. And in doing so, they use the same technologies. It's there that they first use the technologies of colonization. And we tend to think of colonization and imperialism in highly racialized terms. But actually, it's not. If you look at the mechanisms and the language of what the English are using to colonize Ireland and Scotland, you'll find that there are similar patterns, there are similar languages, similar terms that are actually being used. The terms chief, clans, all of that gets made in Scotland in the interaction with the Highlanders. And then from there, you have this moving out from that first initial experience of expansionism into other territories into the world. And the same thing gets replicated. But then what begins to happen is religion with the intersection of notions of difference coming to being. And then you have the birth yeah. of racism that is a perfect discourse to other people and to oppress and exploit them. So all social media jokes aside, hmm. are you suggesting that the confluence of Irish Twitter and Black Twitter over the last yes. few days has got deep historical roots and that the Irish, the Scots maybe even, were the original Bantu subjects of the English monarchy before it then went on to do the same everywhere from Asia to Africa? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I was looking at Irish Twitter and all the props Black Twitter and Irish Twitter were giving each other, it was really lovely. <laughs> it's almost like kindred spirits, colonized subjects have come together in this way. Mm. And, and you know, I mean, right up until the 1970s... But it's also to your point, Vashna, that I, my apologies, mm -hmm. because the historical record that you are lifting to the surface, I think, must be held so that we don't only have modern debates that don't have historical yes. roots. But I can't help but just make this point that I know you're passionate about and I share it, even though I arrived at it far later in my own career than you had, that that props that Irish Twitter and Black Twitter were giving each other is an example of the importance of not reducing the struggle against oppression to race. Exactly, exactly. This this is a classic example of it. And you know why I also think it's really important that we don't reduce the discussion to the questions of race is because when you do that, it becomes a, a, a because race is so apparent, because it's based on your physicality, it gives you the sense of, oh, my God, how do I defeat this? It also gives it a sense of yes. the world has always been like this. But the world mm. hasn't always been like this. It was made at a particular point. And if something gets made, it has to get unmade. It's not an inherent natural part of the world. You know, it's something that was made in particular conditions. And that then gives us the strength to be able to say, well, we can end it if we create another set of conditions. So it's a deeply liberatory thing to understand that it wasn't always like this. And I think 
for me, the, the question around Ireland, I mean, right up until the 1970s and even early 80s, there'd be signs in English pubs that said, no blacks, Irish or dogs. So mm. there was always this, this understanding. And you know what's interesting? In the yeah. Eastern Cape, there's these documents about how they wanted to clear out parts of the Eastern Cape and rehouse the African population. And this document is amazing because if you look at that document and you look at the documents that were used in Scotland to clear the highlanders off the land, it's so similar. They say these people don't live in square houses, so therefore their minds are illogical because the houses wow. in Scotland were built into the mountains and in the Eastern Cape the houses are round, so they're yes. not square, they're not on a grid, the logical mind is not there. In fact, Craddock, he actually spent, which you know, the famous place in the Eastern Cape, Craddock, he actually gave Graham the, the, the instructions to remove and to destroy and the populations between Grahamstown and PE and clear them out. He had spent time as the, as within, within Scotland. That's where he had his training in mm. the, in Scotland. And then he comes to the Eastern Cape. So these things are continuous and the, the imperial powers and that that sort of power uses what's on hand, what discourse is on hand to further their gains. And that's what we yes. need to constantly be realizing. Because despite us having, um, you know, jokes about the queen, despite us, you know, there's this deep divisions, there are very real discussions that need to be happened. Because we must remember that the royal family itself will appropriate whatever it wants. I mean, Perhaps Meghan Markle was the step a bit too far for them. They couldn't quite appropriate that, so they become yeah. quite hostile to her. But they are—they would have fully, if she was acquiescent, if she was quiet and listened, they would have probably appropriated her and blackness into a way into the into the royal family, so that they can mm -hmm. continue to 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 keep the wealth and the power that they have that they did not earn, that they have purely on accident of history. It's not even like there are rich capitalists who, 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 you know, exploited labor and did some work in that sense or yeah. innovative in inventing something as much as we don't like them, Elon Musk or whatever. They didn't even do any of that. Fashna, I want to ask a couple of questions about the historical timeline, mm -hmm. but then also bring us closer to 2022. At what point in the histories that you have summated so eloquently does the monarchy go from hard, obvious, blunt use of force to expand empire to monarchy as we know it today, where some read it as largely benign and symbolic? So that's the first question. And then the second question is just how bloody powerful are they politically, economically, and socially? And should one use descriptors such as symbolic and benign in modernity? Yeah. No, actually, you know, what's really interesting about this, this power of benign is as the monarchy, as the imperial forces, you know, whatever we'd like to think about England, yes, it's got a constitution and it's it's democratic, it has a government, it has a parliament in place. There's still certain laws within England that see the queen as the head of state. And that is a fact. So you cannot, she cannot, or, or she could not have, and now Prince Charles or King Charles, whatever, cannot take on that mantle without taking on the responsibility of mm. what has happened in their name. 
under imperialism. Imperialism doesn't happen in the name of the British people. When, 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 they, cre- when, they, when they declare Victoria Empress of India, that's the Queen's grandmother, they're not doing so as, uh, you know, the great, her great-grandmother. They're not doing so in the name of English people. They're doing so in the name of, of the Queen. And that mm-hmm. institution has that history. And that has mm-hmm. to be taken very seriously to answer your second question first. They are deeply implicated in it. They have completely not only benefited from the plunder and looting of the colonies, and colonized spaces, they have also actively enforced it and encouraged it through a variety of different things. I mean, the fact that they still own over half of the land, the nobility and the elites, and a large percentage of that is owned by the royal family, by the way, that they have still done that within England. There has been no structural change and transformation within the English society. In fact, one of the ways in which the nobility could keep their restless working class and peasant populations, no longer peasant populations, but lower classes in check was through the looting, through the active looting of and, and robbery of colonies and using some of that, those riches to pay off, to give off in forms of grant, in all these different forms to the lower classes so that they could mm-hmm. buy their obedience. That's what happened. And there was no structural change. So now when they they don't have that same dominant power in the world, there's a struggle within England for resources. There's a very real struggle because they don't have the colonies to rebuild England like they did after World War II. They don't have the colonies to uh, to yes. sponsor the NHI like they did after World War II. They don't have that, that access to those wealth. Doesn't mean they still don't have access, but it's much more privatized now and not going into state coffers. State coffers, which the royal family benefit actively from. So it's not that they haven't. In terms of how they've changed and become much more soft in the imperialist project, if you look at, you know, there's an important moment in, in, in India. In India, there's the 1857 rebellion that happens in India where the soldiers, the Indian soldiers who are employed by the British begin to rebel against them. After this, there's a huge conflict in India. It becomes known by many Indian nationalists as the first, and like, you know, civil war or the first war against colonialism. Mm. And what happens after that is there's a rethinking within England about mm. how to colonize more effectively. And this is in that period of utilitarianism, all of this, yes. like how to be more efficient and effective, you know, mm-hmm. all of those ideas. And Macaulay, who is this um, Scottish, in fact, a Scottish uh, parliamentarian, he, de- he developed what he develops the first universities being built in, um, in India. Sorry, it was 1757, not 1857, being built in India. And that is to begin to train Indians to be he says actively mm. in the in the in the actual document to be like Englishmen in every way except color, mm. so they can rule in our stead on behalf of us. That's interesting. So that's that's like the first proceeding step. by two hundred years, yes. naming it soft power and yes. getting that popularized by you know Joseph Nye. But effectively, what we have here is an attempt to hoodwink the subjects by inadvertently creating some of them as mini-me's and to be your yes. prefects in charge yes. of the rest of the clan. Yeah, and bureaucracies use education, notions of knowledge, which we still see people rebelling against even till today in our universities. You see it's done through religion, through being a good Christian. There was a fantastic article 
which I'll share with you, you can maybe share it with your readers, about how mm. Calvinism is used as a way to deal with the indigenous populations. Absolutely. And, and then, of course, schools, you know, with their double-edged outcomes. On the one hand, exactly. increased levels of literacy, but also producing and reproducing elitism that is tied to allegiance on the part of imperialist forces, which is why you have maybe in a minority, mm -hmm. but some black people responding with tears. Yes, exactly. And this and this sort of machinery that goes with it has to do with religion, has to do with education, has to do with the media machinery yeah. now that's so hyped up. And I mean, people are talking about the queen as if she's also some feminist icon figure which 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 I've seen and and thinking through that and thinking about how she's the head of 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 of, of an institution that has one of the bloodiest histories against women in the world uh, leave alone what they've done most recently to someone like Meghan Markle whatever her her shortcomings are and even what it's what her sons have done to women in their lives um, leave alone that the entire history of how the monarchy has worked has never been uh, about the liberation of people. It has been about entrenching patriarchy and capital in very, very um, strict and stern ways. Vashna, is there an historical matter of fact or does it become historically woolly and subject to reasonable disagreement whether Ooh. Queen Elizabeth II was, in quotes, merely implicated in a history of imperialism or a direct actor? Both are wrong ethically, but there is an important qualitative difference between saying Eusebius benefits from the history of patriarchy uh -huh. and saying Eusebius is a misogynist. Did she have blood on her hands or was she a beneficiary of well, empire? Well, I mean, I have a very harsh line that might not be uh, <laughs> right by, by, by many people. I mean, you know, the, the thing is that when we are looking for people that have caused damage in the world. When we are looking to people who have been acted in ways that's morally, I don't like to use these terms and talk about it in those terms, evil, uh, but like who have acted against our, our, our the people, our countries, the, our communities and smashed them and we can see the very real smashing of that. We are expecting those people to be evil. We are expecting them to look a particular way. We are expecting them to behave a particular way. We are certainly not expecting her to be a great grandmother who walks around with lovely pink bags and a hat and who smiles <laughs> and laughs and says the right things and is lots all too dogs. polite. Mm. Yeah, lots of dogs and is all too polite and hangs out at her Highland castle that looks like a fairy tale. We are not expecting that. We are expecting rather all too quickly, you know, someone to look like it's much easier to, to make fun and parody, um, you know, I don't know, Ronald Reagan or, or someone like that. Or, you know, in the most racial terms, the ways or in even, even did I say it, a Zulu monarch. Yes. If you have someone who's clad in regalia that yes. doesn't look like you and your friends that went to a private school. Exactly. I mean, how many of these people who are mourning so desperately the Queen of England actually mourned when King Goodwill's Valentini passed away in South Africa? If they yeah. are such monarchists, if they believe in this tradition and the system, yeah. where was their tears then? Right. So it's much easier. And I think those people who don't want to accept the fact that she has benefited in very real terms, the wealth that she has, the fact that her children have been able to benefit who are largely from what i can see highly untalented individuals actually mm. in the world i mean prince andrew's entire contribution to the world is what except sexual predatory i mean he's he's, he's done yeah. nothing of, of value in the world 
I think that she she has been at the head of an institution that has been deeply problematic and deeply implicated in the current structure of society that we have today and the structure of society that doesn't work for the majority of people and they are fully willing to go ahead with it and be okay with it. And she has worked very hard to pass legislation that has made sure that the wealth of her family is not taken away by the state. So it wasn't like she sat behind and did nothing about it. She actively worked for that. She didn't think about saying, well, we have so much of land. Why not democratize the land? She could have done that and still been wealthy and still actually probably been more loved than she was when she when she died. So there's lots of things she could have done that she did not do. And there are lots of ways in which she absolutely directly benefited from exploitation and from oppression of many people in this world. And I think because the media is so good at portraying her as benign, as this lovely grandmother or as this lovely young girl, vulnerable, she's, there's nothing vulnerable about her. It's just the ways in which she's portrayed that make people want to say, oh, you know, let's let's have a break for a moment before we talk about this. Were the Allied forces having a break or were they celebrating when Hitler passed away? What mm. were they doing? Mm. I mean, they were they were celebrating. They, there was no time to say, oh, let's not talk about Hitler just now. Let's be respectful. Why? Because Hitler was killing Europeans. If Hitler was killing Africans, they would have said, okay, okay, just wait. Not now is not the time. Yeah, absolutely. Second last question, what are the vestiges of that long history of imperialism in modern Britain? I was fascinated, for example, when you had said to me offline, how interesting it is, even for example, enrollment at places like Eton, unsurprisingly, places such as Oxbridge. But in other parts of society, just detail for me how institutions, whether they be political, educational, private members' clubs, etc., mm -hmm. are deeply connected to the history that you've mentioned and reproduce the classism that is such a fundamental fault line in British life today. No, absolutely. I mean, it's done through these clubs. It's done through culture, massively through culture, who's in, who's out, the policing of what you wear, the policing of your accent, the types of food you eat, where you are born geographically, all of these things deeply are implicated within the class. And what is the right way to be, is to be part of this nobility, is to be part of this aristocracy that's been around for eight, nine hundred years, unchanged. And if it is land that's owned in the majority by them. If it's education that they have access to in the majority, then that's a large part of society that's already structurally in their favor. And you know what's so interesting is even though they, in the study that was done by Alessi in 2012, they found that in 800 years, the, the, the names like Pembrokes, Darcy's, whatever, mm. all these posh Norman names are the ones that recur in the Oxbridge system. And that even when society was at its most equal in economically in England, in that people had more access to grants and money and social welfare state, there were still not major changes in those mm. elite spaces, in the spaces that shape power. And actually, mm. what, what is really fascinating is that recently what you've had, I think in the last 20 or so years, is the closing down of grammar schools in England, which is one, one, one sort of aspect of the state that had introduced something much more liberatory, where right. meritocracy yeah. mattered. But the closing mm. down of those grammar schools has seen now that actually 
education has once again become absolutely elite. And Eusebius, you see it not only in the sort of people that are represented in government today in England, whether you are in the Labour Party or whether you are in the Tory, you'd have most likely gone to, uh, to Oxbridge. There's very little of a postal service worker who is now an MP. In fact, when one of the studies has shown there's only two people who didn't go to Oxford who were sitting in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Right. And what is so interesting, that has an absolute direct impact on people's lives. But you find it also in something as, you know, some people might think this is not important, but it's I think it's a huge um, sort of signifier of culture and where society is at. If you look at actors today in England, most of the popular actors like the Benedict Cumberpatches and all of these people that have arisen in recent times, they all come out of the public school system. They are not exactly. coming out of, yeah. the, of the old system where you had working class actors like John mm-hmm. Thor and all of them rising to the fore, Kate Winslet, all of these people who come from not just working class but arty families, the intelligentsia, who are coming through into into acting now it's reverted back into the days of the 1940s and 50s where you know you had your sort of elites and the and the elite people going into acting yeah. you see that once again happening mm-hmm. and uh, that is an indicator of how society has shifted Absolutely. and there is and the reason for this is that the state has in its statutorite ways destroyed those community centers they've destroyed the spaces for working class kids to experience art to experience and they still do i mean the entire Tory yeah. leadership was a contestation of who can promise the most destruction yes exactly and so now not, yeah i mean i think that's that's in, absolutely incredible I really have loved this conversation because you and I agreed explicitly and deliberately to, for once, although, you know, you can do both and we love doing both with your historical excellence as an historian, to set aside the the contemporary sort of hot take questions and to do a deep dive into history because that's kind of missing in some of the journalism Mm -hmm. and the best of the journalism that has had historical context often doesn't get appreciated and read and because they long essays and that kind of thing. But I do want to ask you at least one of the sort of hot take questions that it would be remiss not to because you and I are both political animals. As a matter of principle, normatively speaking, Mm -hmm. and this is a question that applies both to South Africa for that matter and to England, are monarchies incompatible with constitutional democracy or can we lie to ourselves creatively and call it attention? They can live side by side. I think it's I think it's absolutely a contradiction in terms. I think that it cannot. We we cease to be a constitutional democracy when we allow for these sorts of small things to go ahead alongside our democracies. I don't agree with it in South Africa. I don't agree with it. In um, in England, I mean, people are saying, "Oh well, she's not my queen," and they're putting a picture of uh, some African queen. Well, I don't want any queen. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I want I want Queen Beyonce maybe, but I don't want any <laughs> other queen besides Queen Beyonce to entertain me. But in any serious sense of the word, I do not think that we can actually sustain and live in a world as it is our world. In, in, in countries that have great constitutional democracies, including South Africa, despite what everyone might no, think. Because monarchies are ubiquitous, so that's why I'm asking the question. I mean, yes. every second political leader, even faction battles within the ANC, you see, you know, the latest picture of someone who's younger than me 
and you would think would be a little bit more critical in thinking mm-hmm. through these issues like Ronald Lamola mm-hmm. tweeting a picture and saying I'm doing a I I, I had a courtesy visit um at you know the the the, the king of the Zulu kings mm-hmm. um place where we mm-hmm. discussed crime and GBV and besides the fact that I thought to myself what makes you think that the king is a thought leader in all of these big questions mm-hmm. there was implicit in that photo a recognition or a assumption at least that there's something politically to be milked by sucking up to monarchies whether they are in england or here in south africa and that bothers me as a constitutional democrat yeah. and i think it is a failing of our constitutional democracy and it shows the decline it's because of our democratic structures are not strong enough to contain our democratic values it's 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 in decline so people are mm. using they are using these quick tricks they are using things of association not just with monarchies for example i don't see what the children of a political leader who's done something great has to do with anything i mean if the, the, their children have done their descendants haven't done anything why is it important to me to them why is it important to give them a space if they themselves have not contributed and worked hard in the same way i see in any sort of inherited there's no, nothing inherited it shouldn't be inherited in that way the ways yeah. in which you understand society and i think that is a massive problem and people are always looking for dynasties they're always looking for dynastic politics we have this in india and i think that shows that we have not done the work that we need to to build a society that understands that Absolutely. to function we need good structures and we need people who are doing the work in those good structures on merit not on some sort of primordial thing that we 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 attach with greatness Russian as always absolutely fascinating thank you for expanding our knowledge and helping us to think more critically thanks thanks you cbs